I'm Doug, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Twelve traditions. Uh, our speaker this morning, I called him a year ago and uh, asked him if he would speak, and, and I thought he was going to climb over the phone. He just seemed real delighted to, uh, to come and do it for us. And uh, here lately, <laughs> trying to get in touch with each other and... and uh, and make the connections that we needed to make, we just couldn't seem to do it. It was like we were playing phone tag with our answering system. Uh, but we did manage, and uh, and he is here. I went and picked him up yesterday at the airport, and uh, didn't have the foggiest idea about what he looked like. I had this image, like Susan was talking about, you know, uh, by listening to him over the phone and listening to his tape and and. You know, I was kind of expecting somebody big and tall like John Wayne. And uh, and when we went to pick up Mickey, we were expecting somebody different also. But, you know, it's, 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 it's funny what those tapes do to these people's voices. Uh, so we're standing at the airport, and all these people are walking by with their hanging bags and stuff, and I'm sitting there looking at Gary going, I wonder if that was him. That looks like him. And... But Earl finally did come out, and he was looking for me and, and, or somebody, and, and uh, we did make our connections, and we got back here in time to listen to Don Gates last night. Uh, and coming into Baduca, we uh, come driving by Regina's, and he wants to know all about Regina's. So I know what Earl dreamt about last night. He is a wonderful person. I've enjoyed talking with him and sharing with him. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Earl from Los Angeles. <laughs> My name's Earl. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Nice to be in Paducah, Kentucky. Did I say that right? I said that all right. I got when I was in I was in uh, Biloxi earlier this year and uh, I got corrected a lot it's not Biloxi Mississippi Biloxi Mississippi I'm learning I'm a California boy you know what I mean I'm learning I'm learning I want to thank the committee for asking me to come speak here um, I particularly want to thank uh, Carol and Gary for coming up uh, picking me up in Nashville and driving me down here uh, it was nice to have the time in the in the car uh, just to get to know them. You know, I've been talking to Carol for over a year on the phone, and uh, it was nice to get to know everybody. Um, and it was great to be here. And I mean, it's a long way to go the, to hear a local guy. I mean, when we got here, going in here, Don G last night, that was terrific. I, uh, I love listening to him talking. I never get to hear him when I'm in town. So uh, that alone, as far as I'm concerned, is worth coming to Kentucky for. Um, and I'm sorry I didn't get to come here earlier and... Uh, hang out at the conference, at the convention. It's, uh, it's a little strange to fly out of Los Angeles, um, end up in, in uh, Paducah, walk into the back of a meeting, listen, go to your room, go to sleep, get up, and all of a sudden I'm standing up here. Uh, so we'll just see what happens, huh? I tried to give it to God during uh, the serenity prayer. I have a tendency to take it back, though, on a regular basis. Anyway, I didn't start drinking until I was 12 years old. I... Uh, that's kind of late in the game for some, you know what I mean? But, uh, and the reason I waited till I was 12 is uh, that was the first time somebody offered me a drink. Uh, somebody said, uh, would, would you like a drink? And I said, well, yeah, I would. 
Um, I had been restless, irritable, and discontented for quite some time at that point. Actually, what had happened was is that uh, my father had decided it was time for me to become a man when I was 12, um, which was ridiculous, but hey, it was dad, you know. And dad said, uh, uh, so they did a bunch of tests on me, uh, a bunch of uh, tests and IQ tests, and uh, found out I had a very high IQ. I do not have it anymore. <laughs> but I, I can lay claim to having at one time had a very high IQ. I, short order of that. Um, and so I got sent to this uh, boarding school, this think tank, um, for very bright young men. They, and they were from all over the world. They had scoured the earth to find 250 of the most disturbed young men they could possibly find. The place was like a Lord of the Flies, man. I mean, it was really strange. Um, real strange. Um, guys from Japan and Thailand and Mexico and you know, all over Europe and uh, Saudi Arabia and I mean it was just it was wild and I was everybody in that school was 13 to 18 years of age and I was 12 years old I was the youngest and the smallest kid in this whole school and uh, and I had no tools for living I didn't I, I but at that point I didn't see that I really needed any in particular I mean I you know I, I had mom dad this the cat you know well, walk up to the corner of the school, they'd ask me some questions, I'd answer them, come walk back home. I mean, that was my life. I mean, what kind of tools do you need for that, you know? They said, it's time to eat, it's time to go to sleep, it's time to get up. I mean, you know what I mean? I just sort of did this stuff. I didn't really know how to do anything on my own. And all of a sudden, I'm in this school, I'm the young, and everybody's a teenager except me. And that doesn't mean anything to anybody but a 12-year-old. I mean, I knew I was in the wrong place. This was not going to work out. There'd been a terrible mistake. I was petrified of this place. And I had no tools for dealing with it whatsoever. And in that first week in that school, I did develop some tools. I mean, I, every school's got a guy named Tiny. You know, I met Tiny. You know, Tiny's like 6'4", 240, you know, slaps everybody around. And I'm walking around this campus with my head down and my books under my arm. And, and uh, Tiny found me. And he said, how you doing, punk? He slapped me in the back of the head and sent my books flying and me flying. And I had like this out-of-body experience, you know. It's a, <laughs> You know, like when you're watching yourself do something, you know, there's a voice in your head going, this is a really bad idea. You know, you really should. And then you're just doing it. You're watching. And I just got up and I walked over to Tiny and I hit him as hard as I could, which had no effect on Tiny whatsoever, you know. <laughs> and I looked up at Tiny, you know what I mean? And I would just sit there looking at this guy thinking, you know, we're so far past anything I know anything about. You're going to have to take this from here, man, because I don't know what to do now. And he looked down at me and said, you know what? You got a lot of guts, kid. And he beat the crap out of me right on the spot. <laughs> And as I'm taking this beating, I'm thinking, this is going pretty good. <laughs> I knew about beatings. I could take the beating, you know. What was important to me was he had just said, you got a lot of guts. And the fact was, I was absolutely terrified of this guy. My violence had masked the fear. He didn't know I was afraid of him. To rule, that's the tool number one in my life, violence works. So for a great deal of time in my life, I'm no tough guy and I am no bad guy. I never have been and I never will be. But I have been extremely violent in my life as a result of fear. That's the first tool for living I had. Um, and how violent I would become was directly contingent upon how bad you frighten me. You scare me real bad, I get real violent. Uh, it's got nothing to do with being tough. Just, you know, oh look, here's Earl, he's climbing over the table, somebody spooked him. <laughs> Here he goes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the way I was. Uh, I got the stitches to prove it, too. Uh, 
Next tool for living was, uh, and of course, word spread across the campus like wildfire. You know, watch out for this little high tower kid. He's a maniac. He attacked Tiny. <laughs> you know? So now I got this reputation that's got absolutely nothing to do with who I am. I'm this terrified little child sitting in my room going, oh, man. You know what I mean? That was like my mantra for the day. Just, you know, I'd wake up and just go, oh, man. <laughs> now what? You know? And so all the cool guys started coming around, you know? They thought, we got to hook up with this little wild man at Hightower, you know? So they swung by the room, and this guy came into my room, and he said, uh, hey, you want to smoke a joint? I said, well, yeah. You know? I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. I had no idea what that meant. But, I, but the, I mean, I was alone in the universe, as far as I could tell. I needed to hook up. It would have made no difference what that guy said to me. Because basically what I heard was, do you want to come with us? The answer was yes. I mean, he could have said, listen, we're going to go kill the Spanish teacher. Do you want to come? I'd have said, well, yeah, I'll be one with you. I'm there, man. Let's go. You know? What's your name? What are we doing here? What's going on? You know? And that was Matt. And we swung by Steve's room. We picked up Steve. And Steve had, a, had this container, it looked like. It was wrapped in tin foil. Right? And he had this with him. And we all three of us trotted off behind the dormitory. And we stood by this big tree behind the dormitory out there by the woods and this and I just sort of stood there looking at these two guys, you know, like, hey, now what do we do? And Matt took out this cigarette-looking thing, you know, and lit it, took a puff off this thing, and handed it to me, and I just did what he did, handed it over to Steve. And Steve was over there real busy. He was unwrapping this tinfoil. And you could tell by the way he was unwrapping it that what's in this thing is really important. And, and very careful with this thing, right? He's got this little Tupperware deal, and he opens it up, and it's filled with cheap red wine. I mean, cheap red wine. There's not a grape within a thousand miles of where they made this stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is that fortified stuff, you know what I mean? Drink it through a straw and hallucinate. So we had to, he took a pour on the wine and we got the wine going and we got the pot going and, and, and it happened. It happened. If there's a line we cross, I crossed it right there. There's a guy I know that says the line, the invisible line is his mouth. <laughs> you know, it's just, <laughs> and that was me, man, that was me. Uh, and, because all of a sudden this warm feeling came up over me and for the first time in my long, lonely 12 years, I knew everything was going to be all right. This could work out. I didn't know if it was this pot or this wine. I mean, none of this stuff made any sense to me. Are these my two best friends I was standing here with? I didn't know if it was them. <laughs> these, are my, these are my brothers, man. These are my homeboys. Matt and Steve. Um, I love those guys forever there, man. They were, they were there at the moment I crossed over. And uh, I just knew I'm going to do this as often as I possibly can. And I did it every, uh, for the next 16 years on a daily basis, no matter what. Given a good reason, I did not stop. Never did. Never even occurred to me to stop. Because this is what I do. This is the thing that's the missing piece for me. This is the thing that allows me to be in a room with other people. To get dressed and, and walk outside. Right? To close my eyes when I'm taking a shower and put my head under the water. This is the stuff that makes all that stuff that scares me, that spooks me, makes it all fine. I was just a frightened little child. And I mean, so those are the humble beginnings for me, pot and wine. Now, I'm a child of the 60s, right? I grew up in the 60s, and we were very focused on drugs. I do not, I do not refer to myself as an addict. I refer to myself as an alcoholic because that's exactly what I am. Alcohol led me to Alcoholics Anonymous. But now, but drugs led me to alcohol, you know? I mean, we talk, um, uh, drugs are part of my story. They, uh, 
I'm a child of the 60s. That's what we were focused on. We weren't going to drink ourselves to death like our drunken parents were. We were going we to kill ourselves in a whole new way. <laughs> you know, we were trying to carve out our own identity. You know, you be the alcoholics, we'll be the drug addicts, you know. Uh, but in my, everything I understand is in retrospect about my life. I, don't know, I, I didn't know what I was doing when I was doing it. I, I never had any idea. I was just trying to get through the day in one piece. You know, it's in retrospect in my inventory work that I understand that the drugs would come and go, but there was only one thing that was always on the table for me, and that was booze, right from the beginning. I wasn't focused on it, but it's the thing that was always there. The other stuff would come and go. Booze was the only thing that was always on the table. And I think there's a very simple explanation for that in my life, and that is, is that booze is reliable. Drugs are not. Drugs are very unreliable. I mean, there's not a lot of quality control going on out there in the drug world. You know what I mean? You don't know what you're getting. You don't know what you're getting. I mean, when was the last time you went to go buy some cocaine and, and the dealer said to you, well, you know, it's not really very good today. You know, why don't you come back in a couple of days? We'll have something better for you. <laughs> Does not happen. Everybody's got the best. It's the greatest. You're not going to believe it. It's unbelievable. You know, it's a complete and total lie. Nobody knows anything about anything they got out there. You don't know what you got till you got it in your body. So you got to have booze, because booze is reliable. You get yourself a quart of Jack Daniels, you know what you got. You get yourself a fifth of gin, it'll do the same thing to you every time. That's what I loved about booze. Booze was reliable. You got so much, you got so much cocaine in your system, you can't get your mouth open anymore. You're just <sighs> don't worry about it. You know that's kind of putting a damper on the party. You know what I mean? You can't. You're just don't worry about it. If you suck a little gin through your teeth, you'll be all right. I'll get you back in the comfort zone. You can move on about your business. Not enough heroin to get you through the night? Don't worry about it. Jack Daniels will get you the rest of the way. He'll get you to that quiet, dark place you're after. That's what's important. Booze is reliable. So that's the thing that I have always relied on in my life. And that's why I qualify as an alcoholic. Nothing has ever compared to alcohol in my life until I found Alcoholics Anonymous. Nothing has had a more profound effect on my life than alcohol until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. So it was humble beginnings. I mean, just a little pot and wine, you know, and I figured this is beautiful. And, and the thing about it was, the thing that made it so remarkable to me was that I paid absolutely no price for it. I got high. I got drunk. I felt better than I'd ever felt in my life. I woke up the next morning, popped a couple Tylenol and hit the road. Man, so it was fine. Nothing bad happened. So I paid no price for the most wonderful feeling in the world. Now, why wouldn't I want to do that again and again and again? Why not? Little did I know that those two lines were going to cross later in my life and that as I continued along this path, the high that I got was less and less and less and less and that I would end up just trying to get well. I'd just be trying to get well every day and the price that I'd be paying for that would be horrendous. Would be every, I, the, the willingness to lose everything in my life, including my life. So 13 was simple. So when I was 13 years old, somebody offered me some pills. But said, would you, like, would you like some pills? And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> what are they? I said, two and all. I said, oh, well, all right. There was information that was useless to me. I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> you know, so I took a couple of those, you know what I mean? And about 20 minutes later, I was laying on the floor and felt really good about it. I said, <laughs> you know, can we get you anything else? No. <laughs> you know, maybe a couple more of those pills. That was very nice. I really enjoyed that. 14 with psychedelics. You know, this woman said to me, um, I'd, I'd gone on a path in this boarding school, and I was on a path with Debbie. Um, Debbie was Debbie was a bad girl, and an, and the older woman, right? She was fifteen and a half. <laughs> she was a bad girl, and I had such respect for Debbie, man. I mean, that she opened my eyes, and I. 
I said, yeah, if I wanted to, she wants me if I wanted to, well, you want to draw some acid? And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, what is that? And she said, well, you'll see. <laughs> she gave me this little tiny pill, and I took the pill and put it in my mouth. And she said, uh, did you take that whole thing? I said, well, of course I did. You know, it was a very tiny little thing. You know what I mean? I'm used to these big old horse caps. You know what? She said, well, that's three hits of white lightning. And I said, oh, well, yeah, yeah. I have no idea what that meant. A little identification in the room, huh? And, uh, well, let's just put it this way. The next two days are very interesting. And I have never been the same. At some point, today, to this day, going into a supermarket takes a real commitment on my part. Because during the course of this two days, we decided that we would pretend we were married, and we went shopping for the family. I mean, I don't know how we got to that idea, but where we were, we're in the market, and I'm, you know, losing my mind, just slowly but surely in his market, going down the aisle, pushing his cart with this woman child next to me, and I, and I, I looked at her, and I said, you know, do we have children? And she said, yes, too. And I went, got to get these diapers down, and got the diapers down. I'm shopping. I'm shopping, all right? Now, I mean, I only have bits and pieces of this experience to, to relate to you, and she didn't do any better. But I can tell you, to this day, going into market, I need to take a deep breath, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, we're going in. You know, let's just go into the market and do this stuff. And I mean, you ever seen the abandoned shopping cart in the market? You know, there's just a cart sitting there, so, there's somebody just abandoned. I understand that guy. <laughs> I understand that guy, man. I mean, you get in there and you're going, I need, I want to have some corn. You know, and there's cream corn and corn and corn, and that Mexican thing and that stuff with the pimentos and the thing and the no starch and there. It's too many decisions. I come back later, you know. <laughs> it's too much. Market's tough, man. That's what sponsors are for. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's a smart, good sponsor will tell you, make a lift. Right, I had to make a limb. Oh, man. See, now, see, the people out there, and I can tell that story out there, and these people look at me like, man, that's the saddest thing I ever heard in my life. You know, they don't get it. They don't get it. I mean, they take all that stuff. You, just, you know, you want to go to the market, you just go to the market and get what you need and go home. You know what I mean? We don't take that stuff for granted. You know what I mean? Like, I had to re... I had to... I had to earn my right to go to the market, you know what I mean? I, <laughs> it took a long time for me to be able to handle that without people asking me, you all right? <laughs> anyway, so 14 was psychedelics, 15 I started shooting dope because this person walked up to me and said, would, would you like me to stick this in your body? And I said, well, yeah, all right. <laughs> and they stuck that in me, you know what I mean? And as my undead did this. And on my way down, all I remember thinking was, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That'll work. That'll work. Man, I mean, blam. I, I'm, at, I'm at, heart and lungs are working. That's it. That's all, everything else is shut down, and, and I really like it here. There's just nothing going on. I'm just sitting here. You know, some, you could have walked up to me and said, Earl, do you have any hopes? No. Any dreams, any aspirations, a goal of any kind? No. Is there anything at all you'd like we could get for you? You think you could get her to come back over here and do that again? I was, you know, I was clear of purpose. I was clear of purpose. All this stuff means to me is 
it'll kill the fear. It's the fear killer. That's all I'm interested in. Kill the fear. If the booze will do it, hand me the bottle. That's all I want to know. Fear killer. Kill the fear. Allow me to feel comfortable standing where I'm standing, doing what I'm doing with the people I'm doing it with. That's all I want. No big deals. Just let me feel comfortable standing here. That's all I want. I've never been able to feel that way. If the bottle's going to do it, I'm going to take it. And I'll take whatever consequences come along with it. That's all I'm after. See, I mean, I got a lot of them. I got every human emotion in me that anybody else has got. I got a big barrel full of emotions inside me. Swimming around up on the top is all this, all, all, all these, you know, I mean, you feel them all the time. I don't know anybody that just feels one feeling for a couple days, gets tired of that, and then just feels something else, you know? I mean, it just kind of comes and goes and whips around and just goes by. I mean, you feel lust irritability, confusion, mild discontent, kind of happy, a little sad. I felt every single one of those since I've been in this room this morning. All of them. They just kind of go, you know, you're just sitting up here and you're thinking, oh, she's very attractive, isn't she? She's very, you know, you know and I go, look at that guy over there, you know, he looks like a nice guy. You know, look at that guy over there. He's kind of, you know, ornery, kind of hostile. You know, I've been up since God knows when. Jesus Christ, 4.30 my time in the morning. What the hell am I doing here? I, 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 I. You know what I mean? It's just kind of coming and going and floating around in my head, you know what I mean? But way down in the bottom of that barrel of emotions, that deep undercurrent that runs my life, excuse me, ran my life, is fear. That's the thing that ran me all the time. And that's what I'm drinking at. So I got to drink through all this other stuff and get and kill the fear. I got to kill the fear. And if it's the last thing I feel, I have to get drunk. I have to get drunk to do what I'm there to do. So I was a drunk from the beginning. I drank to get drunk. I drank for the effect right from the beginning. And that's why I'm an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic because daddy was an ornery son of a bitch. He was. That's not why I'm an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic because I had a high IQ and I'm a very sensitive individual. <laughs> Got nothing to do with my inner child. I love that inner child stuff, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm glad that people get stuff out of it, more power to them, and I think that's terrific. It's an outside thing as far as I'm concerned. But I always wonder why, they all, all, every, why everybody's inner child needs a hug. That's not who my inner child is. My inner child has a gun and a fist, you know what I mean? <laughs> and he wants to say something real nasty to you, and he hopes you don't like it, and he hopes you want to do something about it. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't, everybody's in control of this sweet, lovely thing. Not a man. No, well, keep that child locked up. I'm not an alcoholic because of any of that stuff. I'm an alcoholic because I'm, I'm a self-centered, frightened individual. And when I drink, it affects me bodily. I'm bodily and mentally different than my fellows. I have a physical allergic reaction, an abnormal reaction, which is my allergic reaction to alcohol. And that abnormal reaction is, is that when I drink, I immediately develop the phenomenon of craving for more of the same. And my mental obsession, the greater aspect of my disease, is remarkable. It says the persistence of this illusion, this belief in a lie that I can drink like the normal individual, is astonishing. Many of us pursue it to the gates of insanity and death. That's right here. Been to the gate. I'll tell you about it. We're getting right we're getting near the gate part of my life here. You know, and I'm only fifteen. Uh, <laughs> I'm approaching the gates at 15. You know, I mean, and it's just, I'm just blazing like a madman by 15. 16, I dropped out of school. I figured four years of Latin was enough. <laughs> you know, I just closed the Latin book. I remember that. That's like one of those freeze frame pictures in my life where I was just sitting there studying Latin and I just went, nope. 
close that book. I'm done. My father came back in my life and said, you've obviously lost your mind. I said, what's your first clue, Pop? And he threw me in my first mental institution. They had me for uh, three months of observation and a year of rehabilitation. And I'm, I'm in this nut house shuffling around, you know, shuffling around in a hospital with all these other crazy people. Now I wasn't a crazy person. I was just a little confused, you know. You know? Stick to hit the acid, you know, and shoot dope and drink for a while. You know what I mean? You get a little squirrely, you know. I was... <laughs> You know, so I showed up in the night house going, well, maybe the answer's here. You know what I mean? And I was restless, irritable, and discontented in there. They give you three cups of pills a day and a shot if you act out. So all I did was try to find a new way to act out every day so I could get the shot. I mean, that was like my treatment plan, you know? <laughs> get the shot, you know? I'm shuffling around in there, and I decided one day I was having lunch with Kill Day. Kill Day was a piece of work, man. Kill Day had made a conscious decision to go nuts years before. And was really entertaining. You know what I mean? I always had lunch with Kilday because you just sit down and say, "What's up, Kilday?" And she would just start. And it was the most remarkable thing you'd ever seen in your life. Was this woman just word salad, just talking about all kinds of stuff? And it was really poetic. You know what I mean? So it was just like it was like dinner and a show. Every time you had a meal with Kilday, you know. So you just ate with Kilday. And I'm eating with Kilday, and I'm thinking, you know, I, you know, I've done this now. I gotta, I gotta get out of here. I gotta, gotta escape. I gotta escape from this place. And I start, you know, and I'm, I'm a little alcoholic. I'm thinking, escape. This is good. So I like to see those exits. I got them in here, these lit up exit signs, you know, but they're green in this place. And I said, there it is. That's what I want to do. Exit. Now show me the way. Just follow the light, <laughs> you know? Well, the exit light. So I decided, I'm sitting on my table, and I decided it's time to bust out. I'm gonna make my move, right? So I'm sitting there, I'm going, ready? Ready? Go! And I'm hauling ass, you know what I mean? <laughs> I got the arms are working, man, and everything. I'm working. You know what I mean? I, you know, I've been in this hospital a few weeks, stuff around. I don't, you know, I didn't know. You know, you have been reduced to two speeds in this joint, man. Shuffle and seated. That's it. You know? And, uh, tools for living. At that point in my life, the tools for, in my life for living were drugs, alcohol, violence, and run. Those are my tools. I needed a new tool. If you're going to live my life, you got to know. If you're going to get thrown in the nut house, you got to escape before they get the Thorazine in you. Because if you don't, you're leaving when they say. They got your tail salted, you know? Anyway, so the next time they threw me in the nut house, I escaped the first day. They, I got out, and I was out for a while, and they threw the net over me and dragged me back in, and I told them I was really glad they'd caught me. It was terrible out there. I was having a terrible time. Hey, look at that. <laughs> I'm, I hit the back. I'm in the back, man. I'm hauling towards this 12-foot chain-link fence with ivy on it. See it today. And I'm going for the fence, and I go, there's whistles going, and people are running, and I got a guy right behind me. And I'm thinking, I mean, at that point in my life, I'm like 17 years old. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm a high school dropout. I'm at any moment, hopefully, an escape mental patient. That's like my resume, you know what I mean? So what do you got to say for yourself, bro? Well, you know what I mean? I'm fast on my feet, you know. I can, I can talk to you while you pump my stomach. That's a, that's, a, that's, a hard, that's a difficult skill to develop, you know. To be able to talk to a guy while you're having your stomach pump. How you doing now, Errol? Well, I'm having a bad day, man. <laughs> I'm working out. Overshot the mark one more time. Sorry to say. You know you're not doing well when they're loading you into the ambulance, and the guy looks down at you and says, 
Hi, Earl. <laughs> You're getting known in the wrong circles, man. It's getting bad. And I mean, I'm like 16, 17 years old. And I, I made that back fence. And I'm thinking, as I'm running for that fence, I'm thinking, if I make the fence, I don't have a problem. Because I'll be drunk in 20 minutes, and that's all that matters. And the reason that's all that matters is because I drink and use no matter what. Which is why, my neck of the woods, I got a thing they tell new guys, which really pisses me off. And they say, uh, you know what? Just don't drink or use no matter what, pal. You'll be all right. I'm thinking, yeah? Yeah? If that was true, I guarantee you I would not be in Paducah, Kentucky today. What the hell for? Why would I go to Paducah? Talk to a bunch of people. I don't know. Got nothing to do with my life. Why would I call my sponsor on a daily basis? What for? Take direction? You must be joking. Work the steps? Go anywhere near step four. Step eight. Are you crazy? What for? Go to meetings? I don't think so. Bunch of suffering, whining, alcoholic. I ain't gonna go in a room with those people. What for? I'd just be happy out there living my life and just not drinking and using no matter what. That's what I'd be doing. If I could do that, fact is, I'm the flip side of that. I can't. I drink and use no matter what. I'm the exact opposite of that. Give me a good reason to stop. I don't. I can't just, just don't drink or use no matter what. It's like just saying no. You are missing the point. <laughs> You're missing the point. I'd be happy to do that. Don't seem to be able to. Not armed with the information necessary to make that kind of move in my life. Can't do it. Given a good reason, I keep going. That's the difference between me and the problem drinker. Given a good reason, he'll stop. You put a problem drinker before the judge for another 502, a drink driving under the influence. What's that, what's that called out here? DUI. That'd make sense, wouldn't it? In California, they call him a 502. Right? Get another 502 before the judge. Problem drinker says, you know what? The judge says to him, hey, I see you again. You're doing a year. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to discuss it. You're doing the year. Flat year. The whole year, that's it. Problem drinker says, uh, I don't want to go to jail. Stop drinking and driving. Me, I start wondering what it's going to be like in jail. I'm going. I know I'm going. There's no sense getting upset about it. You're going. It's just the way this thing's going. You know what I mean? It's just leading you this way. Problem drinker's in a relationship with a good woman. Loves a woman. Got a lot invested in the relationship. She loves him woman says, darn, I love you to death, but this drinking thing is killing us. If you know, if you can't stop the drinking, I got to go. Problem nurse says, I love this woman. You know, it's very important to me. You know, cuts out the drinking. Actually does it. I know that's hard for you to believe, but he does. Me? I start thinking about being single. <laughs> she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. I remember one time I was living with this woman up in Redwood City, California. Why, I don't know why I was living with her or why I was living in Redwood City, California. I just kind of ended up, you know, you come out of a blackout and there you are, you know. <laughs> and I'm living with this woman and we had some people over and we'd gotten just annihilated and they just left and I turned and looked at her and she looked at me and she said, I'm too high. Immediately thought, she's got to go. <laughs> I mean, it, I'm serious. Because if you can say it, it's not true. <laughs> you can say, I'm too high. You're not. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous thing to say. I mean, I've never said I'm too high in my life. I've never said that. And what you hear from me is, that's it. That's when you know he's had enough. He just hit the floor. I've never in my life said, no, thank you. I've had enough. Because I've never had enough. Never had enough of anything. 
I'm an absolute pig. And I never saw myself as a pig because I would just like one more drink, please. I would just like to have another drink now, please. You know, and as soon as I got that one in my hand and take a couple of knocks off that, um, I'd like it if I could get another drink. Here, can you get me another drink? Or whatever's going on, you know, stick that in me some more or snort some more of that stuff or smoke some more of that stuff. It's all anti-oral medication. I don't care. I just need to get it in there so I can kill the fear and be able comfortable standing here. That's all I want to do. So, I mean, from 16, 16 and a half on through 19, I spent it on the streets doing what you do to stay high, whatever was necessary. Didn't matter to me. My life had gotten very simple. 20 years old, he diagnosed me and had malignant cancer. Came back to L.A., had major surgery. Uh, they prepared me to die on my back. They prepared me to die, prepared my family for me to die. And I remember thinking as they're telling me this, you have no idea who you're talking to. You know, I might die. <laughs> you know? That comes up like twice a week, the way I'm at going, you know what I mean? You know? I wouldn't stick that in your arm if I was you, Earl. I'd say, well, you're not Earl. <laughs> Bang! You know what I mean? Chase a couple more reds or some of that whiskey. Just going crazy. Uh, and, you know, they put me in the nuclear medicine thing, you know what I mean? Do the rate, shoot me full of radioactive isotopes. And I didn't like their drugs at all, so I just went home and just got loaded the way I get loaded. And I uh, beat the cancer thing. And the way I figured it is the way I was using them in those days, I was, I was using so hard and so heavy that cancer could not live in my body. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like the host became more toxic than the disease. You know, so the cancer just said, no, no. We're going to have to go elsewhere. It was bad. It was bad. And I didn't know it was getting bad. It was just the way it was. You know what I mean? It was just the way my life was. I'd pretty much by that point given up this idea that I was going to have a normal life. You know? That, I mean, I was going to do this Ozzy and Harry thing. I was going to get married and have kids and get a job and get a car. You know what I mean? I, it was just this, I was just blasting through the universe and it was going to end in a big fiery crash and that's just the way it was going to be and that was my life. And I didn't see it as being dramatic or weird or anything like that. It's just my life. You live yours and do what you want and this is me and this is what happens in my life. I mean, some guys go to Vietnam and die and other guys go to prison. You know what I mean? And other guys, you know, get, get the brass ring, the gold ring, you know what I mean? They get it all. And other guys like me don't, you know? And we just, we just do this thing until we drop. And that's just the way it's going to be. But when I was 22, my mother called me from uh, L.A. and said, look, we haven't been anywhere as a family in 10 years. I said, yeah, well, you know, you threw me away when I was 12. You know, why would I want to be doing the family picnic, you know? And, and she said, you know, well, let's just go somewhere as a family. I said, all right. So I flew back to L.A. And on my, on, uh, my 22nd birthday, we took off the flight to Guadalajara. And on the way there, the plane crashed. And my mother, my father, and my little sister were all killed. And I wasn't. And I woke up on this mountain in Mexico. And my skull was fractured. My back was busted in three places. My leg was crushed. My arm was crushed. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I had a lot of internal injuries. And I was awake. And I laid there and I watched them all bleed to death right in front of me. And I quit the game right there. I swore I would never love another human being again as long as I lived. And there was no way I was ever going to tell any of you who I was. There's no way I'm going to let you love me. I'm out of that game altogether. It's way too, the price is too high for a guy like me. I mean, I'd never really been any good at it anyway. I had always been afraid of everything and everybody. I didn't know how to be in the world. I didn't know how to have relationships. And now these people that were core and central to my life were dead. And I, and I didn't want to play. I had no interest in a God that would take a beautiful girl like my little sister and leave a lion, cheating, thieving, dope fiend, alcoholic like me on the planet. Made no sense to me. There was no justice in him. I had no interest in God. God was off the list. And then while I was up on the mountain, these guys came up and scavenged the plane wreck. Guy took the wallet out of my pocket and 
took the money out and put the wallet back down on me and they all just left, left me up there to die. And so I had no interest in my fellow man from that moment on either. So God and man were off the list and I didn't have anybody else to play with. So basically I was just one of the most hostile, angry human beings you ever met in your life. And I wanted you all to know just exactly how angry I was, how righteous that anger was, that I had every right to be as angry as I was. And people come up to me and say, you know what, you think your drinking's a little out of line. I say, excuse me, you ever watch your family bleed to death in front of you? You ever had people leave you somewhere to die? No? And get out of my face. Get out of my face. You don't know what you're talking about. You do not have my experience. So step aside or get knocked aside. I'm going to keep right on doing this. You don't like it, I'll do it someplace else. The hell with you. I mean, and that was the way my life was. I was an angry, hostile mess. I got it. They, I didn't die. They tagged my toe and waited for me to die. I said, I've been in the gates of insanity and death, man. I've been in the nut houses. I've been tagged and bagged, you know? And I didn't die. And they plastered me up and shipped me back to the States. And I spent a lot of time in a hospital. And they told me I'd have a withered left hand. I'd be blind in my left eye. And, and I probably wouldn't walk again. And uh, a few months later, I walked out of there with a back brace and a cane and grabbed a tennis ball and worked it up. And the only time my hand pulls in is when I get real tired. My hand will pull in a little bit because of the nerve damage. And my eye's fine. And uh, the only way you can tell I got a limp is you got to look at the bottom of my shoes because I work real hard so that you would never think there was anything wrong with me. The only way you can tell I limp is that the, my left shoe, the bottom of my left shoe wears out like five times as fast as the bottom of my right shoe. And, you, and or if, you, if I'm tired and I'm walking on a hard floor and hard shoes, you can hear my cadence. You can hear that there's just a little kick to it. You know what I mean? Most people just think I'm just kind of being cocky. You know what I mean? They think, I got, a little, got a little kick in there. You know what I mean? And that's it. Uh, I came out of the hospital uh, uh, strung out on Demerol because I'd been getting the maximum shot every three hours around the clock for a long time. And they don't bring you down or ease you down or cut you, you know what I mean? They just cut you loose. And so three, uh, three hours after I got out of the hospital, I was sweating bullets. And uh, I had to get some. And I ran around with the drug thing for a little bit longer than that. And then one day, I mean, the, I was reliving the plane crash every night in my dreams. I was losing what little grasp of sanity I had. My life had become a complete and total nightmare. And I went down the basement and grabbed myself a fifth of scotch because it was the, not because I liked scotch, because it was the first bottle there. It's the first bottle in. Just grabbed that fifth, cracked the top, and drank the fifth. Drank down the fifth, put the bottle down, and the darkness came and the blackness came. And when I came to, hadn't had any dreams. Everything, I'd gone to that dark, quiet place, and then I'd come back. And from that moment on, it was about alcohol for me. I used cocaine about three, four grams a day just to keep me on my feet so that I could drink the way I wanted to drink. It was about drinking. That's just some stuff I used to keep me on my feet so I could keep up the drinking. When I get to sick, I couldn't drink anymore. I ate about 150 milligrams of Valium a day so I get well enough to go back to drinking. That was all I was for. Well, I drew in the next four and a half years, I did not draw a sober breath except three times. And those three times were because I was strapped to a table for 72 hours each time. That was, I did not drink for those 72 hours, but I got off that table all three times and I swore I will never, ever, 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 ever drink again as long as I live. I can't take this anymore. I'd be drunk that night. I'm the guy in the book pounding on the bar wondering how he got there. That's me. That's me. The reason is, is that I, had, I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I was an alcoholic for years. So what's your point? You know, what I didn't know was what that meant. I did not know what that meant. I did not know what it meant to be an alcoholic other than an alcoholic as a person who's gonna, who has every intention of drinking themselves to death. That's all it was about for me. So my last drunk lasted four and a half years. And when I was done, I had burned, I got in a, I had a house in Bel Air, California, big house, view of the city, 
six cars, cash coming out my ears. I'd been a drug dealer for years. I'd been underground my whole life. I mean, I'd been a drug dealer for years. I had a lot of money. I had the whole thing going. In four and a half years, I burned it to the ground. Burn it to the ground. When I got came out of blackouts were the normal fare. I've come to in different cities. I've come to. Um, I've got a four day blackout. That's what I can get. I can get four days and wake come to. I've lost four days and I have no memory of the four days. Hey, don't. Don't worry about her. I I like them. That's another miracle. Big one. That's a big one. To like those little children. I kind of look at them as teachers now, because I never got to be one of those, you know. So they teach me about about the magic of that. Anyway, that's another story. Um, so I came out of my last blackout, and it had been I'd been at it for four and a half years, hammer and tong. Um, I had over 700 stitches in me. I'd broken about 75 bones. Um, it, it, it had been extreme. I was bright yellow. I was dying of alcoholism. Um, I was 215 pounds. Both my hands were broken. Um, I was sleeping on somebody else's couch. Um, I had a 1968 Volkswagen nobody else would get in. It was a death trap. I'd burn it to the ground. And I, and I had no grasp of reality. And the book talks about it. You know, not knowing the difference between fantasy and reality. Not knowing, did I, and remembering something and not knowing, did somebody tell me that? Did I think of that? Did I dream that? Did I do that? I don't know. I have no idea. It's all this big, giant, maniacal, insane blur. And I can't take the madness anymore. And I threw up my broken hands and I said, help. And they took me by ambulance to an emergency room and the guy that had been pumping my stomach plenty of times pumped it one more time and just shook his head at me. You know what I mean? Like, you're just taking up space, man. Why don't you just die? And they said, you know, you're real close. You know what I mean? They said, get him out of here. He's going to die. We don't want him dying here. And they took me by ambulance over to another place and they kept me five days and I got worse. And they took me by ambulance to another place down in Long Beach, California, under the care of a, a woman by the name of Dr. Vicky Fox. And Dr. Fox, and I sat, and they, and they kicked me for another 12 days in there. I had, to, I had a long detox, man. I was a sick boy. And uh, I was 28 years old. I was way too young to be dying of alcoholism. Uh, so I thought. And I was sitting in a chair not to try not to throw another seizure, you know what I mean? Because in those days, they didn't make you comfortable, you know what I mean? They kind of rode the fine line, you know what I mean? Don't give him the seizure medication and keep him just this side of the seizure. And if he kicks a seizure... Just give him just a tiny bit more at the next time, you know what I mean? And I'm sitting in a chair trying not to throw another seizure, and this woman comes blasting into the room. And I'm telling you, if Vicki Fox got makes you rest in peace, if she were alive, she'd walk through that door, and you'd all turn around and look at her. You'd feel her come in the room, man. She was a Georgia peach. She was a powerhouse. Had a big old beehive do with a pencil in it, you know. Had the, had the glasses around on the chain around the neck, you know, with his sweater, and a big stack of files under her arm at all times, and a cigarette hanging out the corner of her mouth that never left. You know what I mean? She never took it out. She just smoked it right there. You know what I mean? So she had, like, ashes down on the sweater. She came walking in the detox, and there's, like, you know, 30 of us in there all screaming and going crazy and nuts. You know, this was not a real fashionable joint. You know what I mean? This was like a warehouse where alcoholics got introduced to to doing it in a different way, you know? And I'm sitting in my chair, and she stopped, and she looked at me, and I just kind of, you know... She walked right over to me and she put her hand on my cheek and she patted me on the cheek and she said, Baby, you really do need to be here. <laughs> and turned around and walked away. And I just went, Yeah. That's like the first direction I got. You know what I mean? It's like, Okay, stay here. Do not leave here. So I sat in my chair, man. They said, Go left. And I went left. After, I, did not get, I did not get sober because I realized it was time for me to do that. It was like alcoholism hung on to me till it had no further use for me and it spit me out and I landed in that hospital on a free bed. Thank you, God. And the first meeting 
I ever went to in my life was they had brought a panel in. And they got me, I had gotten where I could walk, you know what I mean? Not too, I need a little help, but I could stand up, and I just kind of, and they give me a third of a cup of decaf coffee. Because, you know, I just spill it more than that on everybody, you know what I mean? I was like, it was like a joke, you know what I mean? It was, I was a nightmare, you know what I mean? So I, I go on and I sat down, they brought in this panel. I get emotional when I tell this. And I'm sitting there, and this guy gets up, and he starts talking. Been sober. I knew he was lying. Been sober a long time. About 20 years at the time. A little more than that. And he made me laugh. All of a sudden, I heard this noise. And it was me laughing. And it immediately hit me that I, I couldn't remember the last time I laughed. It's been years since I laughed. And that made me cry. So I sat there in my little third of a cup of decaf, shaking and crying. And that guy got to me before I got to me. You know what I'm saying? He got to me without me knowing he got to me. And a little bit of that happened. Hope. I dared to think. It wasn't even hope. It was that I dared to think that maybe, maybe, I don't have to die. And that guy was Serenity Sam. In on a panel. The guy sitting right over there. And I didn't see him again for quite a while. It was a couple of years later. And I had a sponsor who took me to a meeting to get my first day of commitment. And I walked in the room. And there he was. And I saw him. And I just burst into tears and ran across the room and threw my arms around him. And just went, Sam! And he went, Get what? <laughs> Of me. What the hell are you? <laughs> he said, You saved my life. And he went, Really? <laughs> kind, of, kind of got the impression if he'd have known that was going to happen, he might have not gone on that panel that day. Because <laughs> he found me rather annoying. And uh, I kid him, I've kidded him about that ever since. I mean, uh, one of my heroes, you know what I mean? To this day, I listen to him and it just. I know I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Um, so I got out of that hospital and I knew one thing. You drink again, you're a dead man. And I ended up in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't come here because I wanted what you had. I had no idea what you had. I didn't know anything about AA. I just knew that this was a place people came and they didn't drink anymore. And I knew that that was number one on my list of things to learn to do. So I came in here and I sat in the back with my arms folded with my best tough guy look on my face. And uh, the message I was sending out was stay away from me. Stay away from me. I'm here to listen. Don't talk to me. And the truth was, don't talk to me because I don't know how to talk to you. I don't know how to do any of this. I'm com I have no idea how to be in the world. I don't know how to have a checking account. I don't know how to have a driver's license. I don't know how to pay insurance. I've never paid taxes in my life. I don't know how to do this thing. And if you find out about the things I have done in my life, I know you'll throw me away because you look like decent people. And decent people don't hang out with people like me. And I sat in the back of my arms holding, and the guys with time saw me and just went, they didn't come up and say, would you like a cup of coffee? They pointed and said, coffee's over there, partner. They gave me lots of room, because they saw the signal. The signal was, come near me and I'll try to kill you. But every room's got a new guy with six or nine months in him, and he's just caught fire with this AA thing, and he's going to give it away now. <laughs> and he, he I, there was mine, man, and he looked at me, and I saw this guy's face light up, and the hand come out, and across the room he started, and I thought, oh, Jesus, what the hell is this? Look at this guy. I mean, he's smiling and everything. I hate that. Came up to me and said, hi, my name's Vegas. I'm an alcoholic. I said, so what? Me too, you know, and it ain't exactly the highlight of my life. I don't know what you're so thrilled about. Get away from me. He did this thing that people do in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
that I find humorous to this day. He looked at me with this really knowing look. You know, like the room got quiet for us both. And he looked at me and he said, you keep coming back. And turned around and walked away. And I sat there thinking, what the hell does that mean? I mean, he says that like it's got this deep spiritual significance. I saw a few guys nod like, oh, yeah, you know. Like everybody, I'm like the loser in the room now. I have no idea what the hell that means. Everybody seems to think that's real deep. I'm a loser. I hate this place. And I love, I, you know, if, you know the, we do it a lot in here, you know, and if you're new and people are walking up to you with this all-knowing face and saying stuff like, keep coming back one day at a time. If you just turn it over, you'd be all right. You know, if they're saying stuff like that to you and you don't have a clue what they mean, I didn't either. Don't worry about it. You know what you might do, however, is I would love for a newcomer to say that in my neck of the woods, this is true anyway, say to them, if the next time somebody does that to you, you just say, excuse me. But I really don't understand the deep spiritual significance of that statement you just made. Would you mind explaining that to me in a little better detail? And if it's an honest individual, most of them are going to say, well, I'd love to, but I don't really know the deep spiritual significance of it either. You know, they've been saying it to me and I've just been saying it to other people. Really, I don't know what the hell that means, you know. There's a guy over here that professes to know something about the big book. Why don't I go over there and ask him? Maybe he knows, you know. That's about 70, 80 percent of the people in my neck of the woods. They don't have a clue what that stuff means. Neither did I, you know. So I sat in the back listening to this stuff thinking, I beats me. I have, I'm, I got no idea. It's amazing to me how strong the human skull is. You know what I mean? That I sat back there with so much insanity and so much pressure in my head that, that, that my head, skull held together is remarkable. You know what I mean? I mean, you should be sitting around in meetings and every once in a while some guy's head just explodes and just falls over on the ground dead. You know, and they got a special cleanup committee that runs in, cleans it up real fast, and goes back on out. You know, all the new guys sitting up in the front are going, what the hell is that? <laughs> Never mind. Speakers up front. Turn around. Wouldn't want you to find out you could blow up in here, you know? The pressure can get too great. Oh, man. And that was me just sitting there spinning in the back with this guy, Vegas. Vegas is now currently drinking himself to death just south of San Francisco. I was up there speaking a couple of weeks ago, and I tried to find him. And some guy said that they knew that he was still alive, but they can't find him. And that's just the nature of the beast, you know? I'd... If you got it in, you say a prayer for Vegas today. He is an alcoholic who still suffers. And... Uh, was a was a, a great help to me in my early sobriety and I love him to death. Um, and I don't judge him for drinking either. He's an alcoholic. You know what I mean? How do you walk up to an alcoholic that's drinking and say, what are you doing that for? <sighs> I know better than ask a question like that. I know what you're doing it for. You step back from this other thing. Just enough for it to start over again for him. He was drunk two years before he took a drink. That's what he'll tell you. Anyway, so I came here, and they said, uh, get a sponsor. And I said, okay, what's the sponsor? And they said, somebody who's got what you want. And I said, you know, I think it's a little early to be throwing the ball back in my court. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you should decide. And this woman said to me, you know, have you ever heard of this guy, Donald M.? And I got this, I got this spooky feeling, because about a year and a half earlier, I'd been in this business meeting with this production, Lorimar Studios out in Los Angeles, and they were talking about doing a movie in my life. There's a bunch of other stuff that's going on in my life that's not pertinent to this, but they decided it was worth making a movie, and I figured if you're going to pay me, I'll talk about it. And I'm sitting there, and, I'm getting, and the, the producer came, and her set designer came with her. It was this guy named Donald. And uh, I'm sitting there telling my story, and I'm getting up every five minutes, you know, going to the bathroom, coming back, you know. And this guy, uh, this guy broke his anonymity. 
He'd been working with these people for six and a half years. None of them knew he was in Alcoholics Anonymous. He stayed anonymous in his work. In his Out there, he was anonymous. He honored that spiritual principle of this program um, and taught me to try and do the same thing. And he let me know that uh, there was a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, and if I didn't get there, I was probably going to die. And I remember thinking, uh, that's very nice. You know, a little dramatic, but it's very nice. <laughs> and it was the only guy I'd ever met from Alcoholics Anonymous, you know what I mean? And I'm in here trying to find a sponsor, and I, can't, I figure I can just talk around all these guys. I can talk my way in and out of all this stuff. And I, I knew that that was something I shouldn't be doing. And she said, you ever heard of this guy, Don Lamb? And I got goosebumps, and I said, I got to go. And I went back to my house, and I opened up my phone book, and there was, opened up to M, and there was one card, paper clipped to the page, and it was Donald's card. I got more goosebumps. I picked up the phone. I thought, I can't wait. I just got to do this. And I picked up the phone, and I called, it, called him, and he answered the phone. And I said, uh, hi, you probably don't remember me. My name is Earl Hightower. And he said, yeah, Earl, I remember you. I said, well, I've been going to some of these A&A meetings, and um, he said, be at my house at noon tomorrow. I showed up there and I asked him to sponsor me and he said yes. And he was the only sponsor I had up until about 90 days ago. And uh, next week I'll be 14 years sober. And he was Alcoholics Anonymous to me. He, I didn't trust anybody on the planet. I wasn't interested in loving or being loved. I was holding true to the promises I made on that mountain in Mexico. But I knew I couldn't drink and I needed to find out how to not do that. And this man was the only human being I trusted for the next two and a half years. I made a conscious decision to trust this one guy. And I did what he told me to do. And for two and a half years, he rebuilt me from the ground up. I didn't know how to do anything. I'd show up at his factory down. He had a factory in, uh, um, down in Hollywood. And he said, uh, I'd show up at 7 o'clock in the morning and go, I'm awake. You know? It's a bad thing. I don't know what to do. And he said, paint the factory. So me and some other guys got a bunch of scaffolding and supplies and stuff. We'd paint every, all day on this factory. And then he'd, give a, he'd get me something to eat and send me to a meeting and, I'd go get some sleep and come back and do it again the next day. When the outside of the factory was painted, he said, paint the inside of the factory. So we painted the inside of the factory day after day after day after day. And when it was done, he said, you know how to paint. Go get a job. <laughs> I mean, you realize, do you understand the significance of that gift? Go get a job. A tremendous gift. Way past the duty of a sponsor. When I didn't know what to do, I mean, he used to call me and check on me. I would call him every day. And I was getting maybe one, two, three hours sleep a night still. So I was just so nuts. I never took a chip in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't take a cake till I was three. And I didn't open my mouth and hear it until I was two and a half years sober. And I did it because he told me, you're, you're going to speak. Cause, and if you don't, you're going to drink. So I spoke. He said, you get this coffee commitment or you're going to drink. So I got the coffee commitment and kept it. I mean, he gave me, I got me a panel. I had it for two and a half years before he told me, you know, you keep that for a year and then you go get something else. I still, nobody told me, so I just kept doing that. I mean, I was locked into this deal. You know what I mean? I got locked in because the hope had started with Sam. Maybe I could get some hope. And Donald taught me how to be in the world. He was the finest example of Alcoholics Anonymous I've ever met in my life. The man was so committed to service. He said, hey, before there was a book, there was one alcoholic down in the dirt sharing his experience, strength, and hope with another alcoholic. That's where we began, and that's where we end, right there. And I said, but you can't give away something you don't have. I mean, that was Donald. Donald was a hard-ass, man. He used to tell me, you know, you screw up with me, you got to go to Clancy. <laughs> if that won't get your ass in action, I don't know what will, man. What do you want me to do, man? <laughs> I do not want to go there.
anyway, what happened was, I mean, I stayed here and I did everything that you're supposed to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I did it all, man. I mean, by the time I was five years sober, I was going to seven or nine meetings a week, calling my sponsor on a daily basis, sponsoring people, had two commi- had a, several commitments, took out two panels, never ever even considered turning down an AA request. Got six and a half years of sobriety, and my outside stuff was looking pretty good, man. I had a job that had turned into a career. I had an apartment I could invite other people to. I had a car other people could sit in with me. You know, stuff other people took for granted. I remember the first time somebody got in my car and sat down next to me in the front seat. We were driving along, and I looked over at him and said, so how was your day? That was like a huge moment for me. Other people thought, oh, that's just silly. No, it isn't, man. Not when you've never been able to do that. That was like a big deal. I loved that. And this person sitting next to me had no idea that was a big moment. I was having these little moments all over the place, man. Like having a driver's license with my name on it and my picture on it. If you drove to that address, I lived there. I was so damn proud of that. First check I ever wrote to the IRS, I couldn't have. It was like tears of joy. I'm in this game, man. I am in this game. Get some money for you. I loved it. I loved it. I loved having a listed phone number. Paying car insurance. I thought, this is terrific. I can do this. I can be in the game. How are you doing it, Errol? Paid car insurance today. <laughs> Loved it, man. Making amends. Owed this paint store a whole bunch of money from my painting career. Right? Paying them 40 bucks a month because that was what I could afford. I was living in a $325 a month one-room apartment and I was having trouble making the rent. I was poor and I had hope. Couldn't have been happier. I know what it's like to make 30 grand in a day. Who cares? I was dying and I was miserable. I'm having trouble making my rent and I couldn't be happier. I'm in the game. I'm in life. I got hope. Screw all that outside stuff, man. I got to feel comfortable standing where I'm standing, doing what I'm doing with the people I'm doing it with without taking a drink. And these people are showing me how. Donald is showing me how. I'm doing this thing. I am in this thing, man. I would walk. I was three years sober. I could walk into a room, five years sober, sit down in a seat and feel good about it. I earned that seat. I earned that seat. Six and a half years of sobriety, I started going nuts. I went up to an old timer and said, what's the deal, man? I got all this. I'm doing it all. He said, Earl, we saw you come in. You don't get yourself a program. You're going to die. Go away. I said, wait a minute. He gave my litany of AA stuff. He said, Earl, that's the fellowship. Vital aspect of your recovery. I'm really, really glad that you're committed to the meetings and doing the commitments and having all that stuff. The program is found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I suggest you read it like your life depends on it because it does. Go away. So I went and I sat down. I was a buddy of mine. He, I had six and a half years. He had eight. I said, listen, we're new, man. We're new. Screw this time thing. Let's figure this deal out. So we opened up this book. Best kept secret in Alcoholics Anonymous. Man, I'm not kidding. Is that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in my neck of the woods. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, we're reading through this thing going, well, here's this thing right here. <laughs> Did you know this thing was in here? It's right there. Flip the page and go, well, here's this other thing right here. Did anybody tell you that this stuff was in here? It's absolutely incredible. Well, I mean, what I found out was is that there's this circle with a triangle, you know? We got jewelry about it. We got bumper stickers and posters. I had no idea what that thing meant. I found out it's an ancient spiritual symbol. It stands for mind, body, and spirit brought together as a whole human being, and that's the balance that we seek and that I personally have never had, drunk or sober. I was as big a maniac in here as I was out there. No balance. Just, the, I mean, the dial's on zero or a hundred. You know what I mean? Just slapping back and forth. On the, you know? I mean, it's, it's, you know, he says, don't smoke. Okay, I'm not going to smoke, then I'll run, 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 run. So I ran until I hallucinated. I ran until my feet were destroyed. You know what I mean? Like Don G- Gates was talking about. You know, stress fractures? Lots of them. You know? Kneecaps wrecked. I mean, just run. You know, I'd go in a meeting and they'd go, he's been running again. You know, because I was just standing back, just hallucinating in the back of the meeting. <laughs> 
How far did you run today? Well, 13 miles, man. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. What happened? Met God. Nice guy. You know? No, for some reason he told me not to visit again for at least a week. I don't. That's completely nuts. You know, I lifted weights. I said I lift weights. I lifted weights till I ripped the muscle off the bone. You know? Did you work out today? Yeah. I don't. I can't understand it. My right arm doesn't work anymore. Something must have gone wrong. Either that or this part of my body is really tired. I can't. You know, this thing is dead. That took, I mean, that's, that was me sober. Just, you know, came a workaholic. I mean, just maniacal. Did the AA dating thing. I love you, let's be friends. 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 <laughs> just a child, an immature child, running around trying to do something adult and having no idea how to do it. No idea. <laughs> just craziness. This symbol, this idea, this book could give me this. I got a balance. This could affect every area of my life. This thing they said was the design of living, it actually is. So I said, all right, what is it? Unity, recovery, and body is the same thing. Unity, recovery, and spirit is the same thing. Unity is the body. I got to bring it here. I got to be with you. Left to my own devices, to my own way of thinking, I'm a dead man. Recovery is of the mind, the greater aspect of my disease. I got to work the 12 steps. That's the recovery, the 12 steps. Step one is what's the problem? Lack of power is my dilemma. I'm powerless over this thing. If that's the problem, what's the solution? Step two. A power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, soundness of mind, relieve me of the obsession to drink. Cool, I'll go with that. Now I haven't even got up off the couch. Step one, yeah, I'll buy that. Step two, you betcha, that's going to have to be the deal for me. Well, it says here, cell phones avails us nothing. Okay, then I better make a decision. Which decision should I make? Got down on my knees, said the third step prayer, turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Oh, that's what you turn over. And then immediately embarked upon, said all this would be for naught, Unless I immediately embarked upon a plan of rigorous action, steps four through nine. So I did four through nine, right like the book said. Amazing things started happening. It started to change for me. They told me I'd be amazed before I was halfway through. Step five, I was. They said the promises would start coming true for me around step nine. They did. I had 10, 11, and 12 to keep me in this game, keep me in the loop. 10 is me, 11 is God, and 12 is you. Got no one else to play with. I had hooked back up with the people and the God that I had forsaken years ago on a mountain in Mexico. Because I cleared away all the stuff that I put, I put, between me and you, and me and God. And there you were. Wondering where I'd been. There you were. 10, I had to keep my side of the street clean when wrong, admit it. 11, I had to seek God. The action was on me. What do I seek him? How do I seek him? Through prayer and meditation. What do I pray for? Knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. That's it. Nice and simple. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result, the whole point of doing it, those steps, I could be of service to other people. You. So now my relationship, finally, after I get through all these 12 steps, my relationship with you is not, what do you got for me, but how can I be of service? Not because I'm a good guy. Not because I've become any kind of a spiritual giant, but because I don't want to go back into madness. I don't want to get drunk. That's why I do it. I don't do it to get laid. I don't do it to get a job. I don't do it because so you'll like me. I do it so I won't get drunk. That's why I do it. However, if you like me or you want to give me money or sex, I'm really, really happy. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
Let's not get too carried away with ourselves, eh? Which brings me to the question of Nikki Knockers. Who the hell is this woman and what's she doing at Regina's? I told them when they were driving me in here, I said, what's that? So it's besides for gentlemen's clubs. What the hell is a gentleman's club? There's like nagging women in there. Oh, says, there's one named Nikki Knockers. I said, you're joking. Said, yeah, she's performing right over there. I said, but we got to go hear Don Gates talk. I said, well, you know, you can get a tape of Don. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> this tape ain't coming back to L.A. Anyway, so I did all that stuff they told me to do in the book. Unity, recovery, service, mind, body, and spirit. And there started to be some balance in my life, and I started being able to do things I was never able to do. And like I said, next week, I'll be uh, a week from today. I'll be uh, 14 years sober, and I couldn't stay sober a day. Now, you're, don't be a clapping. You're just plotting for yourselves. You know what I mean? You're plotting for yourself because I sure as hell didn't do it. None of my best thinking was involved anywhere along the way. None of it. All, if, if only when my best thinking comes into play is if I think this is a good idea, that's a very good indication you should go that way. That's, it's just sort of like a, you know, okay, if you, I'm thinking this, I probably need to look over here. That's all my thinking was for. <laughs> that's it. Um, and it remains that way. You know what I mean? I just, I, I try to do this thing on a daily basis. I try to be a service on a daily basis. I try to go to a meeting on a daily basis. I do all, I mean, I like run my own business now. I, I was married up until a little while ago. I mean, I've tried the marriage thing. And I'm in the game. And I'm screwing up. I'm, 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 I'm separated now. Uh, um, I'm single. I'm starting a new business. I mean, there's a lot of change going on in my life. What it all adds up to is, is that I'm doing the best I can, you know, and I am in the game. I got problems, man. I got problems. I got the best problems I have ever had. They are great problems. I, not once recently has, have I had to worry about living through the night. Not an issue anymore. You know what I mean? I'm worrying about tax difficulties, or am I going to get to go do this, or am I going to get to do that, or how am I going to handle this, or do I have time for this? How am I going to fit all this wonderful stuff in my life? Because like Don was talking about, he's talking about you get to get it on, man. you got to get out there and do this stuff. I'm in the game. I'm doing it all. I'm playing a little guitar. I'm painting a little bit. I'm doing a little photography. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing places. I, people say, you want to come to Paducah, Kentucky? I say, sure. Now, y'all got to know how come I hate flying in an airplane. Right? scares me to death. It's not an irrational fear. It's based on my experience. You know what I mean? Which I have explained to people on planes. I mean, I was flying... Hey, I just think of it as sharing. You know, I see that look of fear and desperation in their eyes after a little bit. I feel better. I had a guy, we were flying back from Washington, D.C. last week. And it was getting kind of bumpy. And my palms were sweating and I was getting my teeth. And I looked at the guy next to me and said, I hate this. And he said, oh, no, no, it'll be all right. You know, you just don't understand. You know, I said, no, you don't understand. I explained to him, planes work 99% of the time. Gravity, however, works 100% of the time. This is an unnatural thing where human beings are supposed to be on the ground. We're in this big metal cylinder rocketing across the sky at about 600 miles an hour. And you're telling me everything's okay? I said, I know there's a lot of alcoholism and drug addiction in the, in the uh, airline industry. <laughs> By the time I was done, this guy was really upset. <laughs> I explained to him, now you understand. I felt a lot better. <laughs> Thank you for letting me share, I told him. 
She looked at me like, man, oh man, I'm glad I sat next to you. So anyway, I mean, but I do it because AA says, come over here, I go. I go. I get on a plane and I get scared to death and I'm terrified the whole way and I get here and I'm exhausted and I can't sleep and it's, I'm a mess, you know what I mean? And I do what I got to do and you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it. I, 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 you know, I don't do it like I said, I don't do it because I'm a good guy. I do it because I want to stay sober. I was the guy who was never going to talk to anybody. And my sponsor, Donald, told me, you're, gonna, you're the one that's going to sponsor a lot of people and speak a lot because we face our worst fears in here. And that's exactly what's happened to me. And I, don't, and, I don't, and I just do it. I do it, and I can't tell you how grateful I am to do it. I mean, and I can't tell you how grateful I am to have had the last year that I've had. This year's been a bitch. I mean, in this year, a guy I sponsored for six and a half years was like a brother to me, was murdered, stabbed to death. Was a, was a Paul Bear at his funeral. Broke my heart. Um, my goddaughter's mother was murdered. And they cut my little 12-year-old goddaughter's throat. She lived. Vicious, brutal thing. Man's inhumanity to man's a mind blower. And got to be around that and watch that. I mean, that was a terrible thing. Terrible thing. Got to be, try to be there for her. Um, my wife got pregnant. Thought I was going to be a father and had a miscarriage. Sad thing. She and I decided that the best, the gentlest thing we could do for one another would be to separate. We did that. Uh, another friend of mine dropped dead of a heart attack. Just boom, on the program. Um, and then the big one about three, uh, a little over, well, three months and six days ago, my sponsor died of a heart attack. And for a minute there, I quit the game again. Didn't want to be in the world. Didn't want to love anybody. Didn't want to care about you. Didn't want to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. It just completely wiped me out. And then I heard his voice. Said, you get yourself another sponsor now. If you don't do it now, you'll never do it. So we were still waiting for them to come get the body, and I had a new sponsor. A man that I knew he loved and respected, and I loved and respected as a result. So he's my sponsor now. I'm having a hard time calling him because as far as I'm concerned, Donald is my sponsor and Donald will always be my sponsor. I was with him long enough that I can hear him in everything I do and everything I say. I can, whenever, when the newcomers come to me and they ask me questions, the answers that come out of my mouth, I hear Donald Madden. That's who I hear. And it's always going to be that way. So when I planned this year, I said for the next year, I'm not, I'm not turning down, I don't care what it does to my business, I don't care what it does to my family, I don't care what it does to anything else in my life, I will not say no to any AA requests. And I'd been saying no a lot because I was losing the balance in my life again because I was just talking all the time. And so I've been, I mean, in just in, the, la in the, la the last weekends in a row, I've been in San Francisco, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rochester, New York, Omaha, Nebraska, Washington, D.C., Paducah, Kentucky. And I'm just, you know what I mean? And I got a bunch more and I'm just going. I'm just going to go and I'm going to do and I'm going to tell people that there's people walking around on this planet like Donald Madden. You know, who gave and gave and gave and gave and were of service to other human beings on a daily basis for as long as they lived and died sober. And they gave the message to fools like me. And we're going to do the best we can to continue to carry the message that they handed down, which is why, in my opinion, Alcoholics Anonymous is going to stay Alcoholics Anonymous, if I got anything to say about it. And Alcoholics Anonymous is going to stay clear of its primary purpose that we carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers in and out of these rooms. And that's the gift of my life. That a guy like me, that a guy like me could stay sober. That a guy like me could get to four, almost 14 years and see, a guy, and see Sam sitting in the room and just feel like I'm home. Because I feel safe when I see him. Then these are the gifts that people give me all the time. And I'm starting to tell them. You know, because I, I, you know, I'm just so grateful I got to tell Donald how much I loved him. 
and that I owed him my life and that there's no way I could repay that. The only thing that I could do would be to honor the thing that he gave me, which is this. So, that's what I'm going to do. And as far as I'm concerned, I can't imagine a better way for an alcoholic like me to live than to just be as tight with this thing as I can and do this for as long as I can. Um, what I am is a grateful alcoholic, and I thank you for my life. If you're new, stick around. Stick around. And when they say stuff to you you don't understand, go ahead and say, I don't understand. And you can be, if you're crazy and you don't get it and you're hostile and you think you might kill yourself or somebody else at any moment, perfect. <laughs> you're in the right place. Just sit down, shut up and listen. And if that's just a little too harsh for you, please have a seat. You might want to consider listening instead of talking. You know, it, it, it might enhance what... Uh, what is, I'm sure, your lofty ability to <laughs> work things out for yourself. You know? <laughs> and just be here with us. You know what I mean? If you arm yourself, I mean, the old sword and the old shield don't work anymore. You know what I mean? If you're like me, you came here and they were both dragging on the ground. You couldn't even lift them anymore. You couldn't cut and slash anymore. And you came here. So put them down. And you arm yourself now with the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That gives you the fellowship and the program. And you are armed to the teeth again, my friend. Use those things. Use it up. Think of it like a big bag of dope or a case of booze or whatever you need to think of it as. But use it all up. Use us. Bother us. Pester us. Stay with us. And watch the change happen for you. I wish you peace. Thanks.